Christave standing for the public reading of scripture. We are in Mark 7, verses 14 through 23. And Jesus called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. All right, the kids are dismissed for Children's Church. Well, good morning. I invite you to open in your Bibles to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 1. Continue to work through Titus together and discuss what the Lord would have us do there as I get everything all set up here. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 16 is what we're looking at um, this morning. And, and what we're looking at this morning as, as we get here to kind of recap what's been happening so far in the book of Titus is that Paul has said that he is an apostle, that he has been a servant of God, that his kind of life purpose is for the sake of the faith of God's people. And that he wants to see them come to the knowledge of the truth and that that knowledge would then accord with a godly life. That the things that they would believe would be then lived out in, in everyday life and what they're doing. He then takes a moment to then tell them that he's going to appoint pastors, elders, overseers of this church that will be able to help people to do that. They'll, they'll be equipped in the truth, they'll model it themselves, and they'll also rebuke those who fail to, to live according to the way that God would have us live. And then as he does that, we then move into today's section. And today's section talks about what's actually happening in Crete. That there are these false teachers that have come about within this, this, this place. And Paul is telling them how they are to handle these false teachers. And that's the question that I want us to ask today. How are we to handle the false teachers that we interact with in our life? I think that we see some really uh, straightforward Steps to be taken when it looks to dealing with false teachers. We are to silence those false teachers. We are to rebuke them. And finally, we're also to remember, though, that a defiled mind is what leads to defiled works. As we talked about, Kendall talked about earlier, and we read today in that passage from Mark, that it's the things that they come outside of us that defile us. That ultimately what we're saying is our sin can be traced back to the things that we believe and want and desire. And when that gets off, we will then produce sin in our lives. That's what's taught all throughout the Bible. It's taught there in Mark 7. And it's going to be taught today, again, in verses 10 through 16 in Titus chapter 1. And so with that, 
I hope you're all turned there now. Let's look at verses 10 through 16 in Titus chapter 1. It says, For there were many who were insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, and especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of those who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for this time, and I ask for your blessing. I ask for your help. Help me to preach your word faithfully, to remove distractions from my mind, and to settle into the word of God, and to be able to explain what you have here, to bring it to life and aim it at the heart of myself and all those who hear. Lord, we pray for a fertile ground for this word to be sowed into. I ask that hearts are ready and open to receive it, and that we would take seriously what it looks like to engage with false teachers in our world today as we look and see how Paul instructed Titus to deal with false teachers in Crete in the first century. I ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as we look at this and we see these false teachers, we want to see first that we must silence them. We can look at our text there, verses 10 through 11, and the first thing we see is that for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, that there wasn't just kind of some small group of people that could be easily ignored. This wasn't some kind of minority faction off to the side where you can kind of just kind of ignore them because those are just kind of like the crazy people and just let the crazy people do their thing. But there were many people, that there were many who were fitting this description. And the description is that they're insubordinate. They just disregard authority, in particular the authority that came from the Apostle Paul, that came from the Word of God, the Gospel. They disregarded that. And what they were doing is it seems like they were adding to the Gospel. They were adding these other Jewish myths or traditions to it, whether that be circumcision or eating certain kinds of foods or, or maybe practicing the Sabbath on a certain kind of day. They were making these over these qualifications for justification that weren't just by faith. And we don't know exactly what that was, but it seems like this party of of Jewish people uh, that were Christians or claiming to be Christians were adding their old traditions, the old laws to the Christian faith. And what's interesting about that is while it doesn't tell us specifically what they're doing, I think that's really helpful to us. Because sometimes by not being really, really specific, what we see is this, is Jesus plus anything equals nothing. That anytime we try to add to the gospel, we are disloyal to the gospel. And that's helpful for us today because now we know that we can still apply these things that Paul is teaching. If it's only to one specific situation and that's it, then it really begs the question, like, what can I learn from this passage? But what's helpful with some of the vagueness is, it helps us know that we can look and we say anytime we're adding to the gospel anything, 
that, that we have, have ammunition that this text gives us and brings us. And so they're insubordinate. They're empty talkers. They maybe talk a lot, but say very little. Have you ever experienced something like that? They say a lot of words, but there's not a lot of substance. But there's sometimes something about that eloquence, a lot of words that makes it, I don't know, feel maybe authoritative. Maybe I should listen to this thing, even though there's not a lot that's really being said in that. And finally, they're deceivers. They're maybe trained in some rhetoric. I want you to be, one of the things that I think Christians do really poorly, particular Christian pastors, is sometimes when we talk about false beliefs or false ideologies, we kind of just build the straw man of them, pull out the straw man and say, see, isn't that just dumb? And anybody who follows that, they just must be dumb. False ideologies, things that are against the gospel, adding things to the gospel can be really, really hard to decipher. Just because somebody gets caught up in a false teaching doesn't mean that you need to like attack them as a person or their intelligence. Sometimes these things are really deceptive. It's easy to get caught up in the deception. It feels really good. Other things seem to be going really, really well, and we can get swept away into it. And the problem with with making deceivers as if they're just kind of these people that they're dumb is you actually open the door in your own life to get caught up as well because you think, I'd never fall for that. Listen, you'll fall for that. I'll fall for that. We have to always be on guard because they are deceivers. They're slick with their words. They're good. They mix in half truths. They don't just tell full out lies. And it gets really hard to sometimes decipher what is the true gospel and what's not. And we have to see here that I think what we see in this passage is they are deceivers. Paul isn't saying they're foolish. They have no idea what they're talking about. He's saying, listen, this is tricky stuff. Listen, because they're, they're weaving in the truth with a lie. And sometimes that gets really hard to figure out what's going on. And as they're doing that, we look then at the next verse there in verse 11, that they must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families and by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. These people are not teaching for the sake of the people that they're leading. They're teaching for their own shameful gain, possibly even monetary gain, which is why Paul is probably contrasting that with the pastor. If we look before, remember what is one of the qualifications that a pastor has to have? Is he cannot be greedy for gain. A pastor can't be that because Paul's saying that's what you have around you. These people are teaching things for their own gain so that they can benefit to your detriment. And that's not the way that Christ would have us lead. It's not the way that he would have us teach. And they're upsetting whole families, possibly those who are most vulnerable, whether it be children, whether that be, and we'll look at this in the, in the next passage, maybe women who, who didn't have access to education like women today in our day have access to education. And so they're just more susceptible to false teaching. And so it's upsetting these whole families and they're sneaking in and they're doing like what you would expect anybody who's a predator to do. They go after those who are, who are most weak. They go after those who are most susceptible. And so they're upsetting these entire families. And so Paul says they must be silenced. Now that is strong language. That is, that is really intense language. That's language that I think our modern sensibilities don't really like. We don't like the thought of like silence the people who are lying. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be responsible for silencing someone. But I want to just say is, is before we look to our culture and compare Paul's words to our culture, maybe we should look to the words of Jesus. If you think Paul is being harsh by saying silence these false teachers, listen to what Jesus says in Luke 17. 
Verses 1 and 2. He says, Temptations to sin, to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a milestone, of a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should come and cause one of these little ones to sin. That's extreme language. It is better to have a rock tied to your neck and thrown into the sea than to lead somebody astray, than to allow your false teaching to lead someone astray. I think what Paul's saying, he's saying silence them. It's an act of mercy. He's saying keep them from being judged by God because by bringing other people away from God, they're going to get judged by God. So we need to silence them. We need to silence these false teachers for their own sake and for the sake of the people that they're drawing away. None of us, for a second, if there was a rabid dog let loose in your neighborhood, biting on your children, would you say, don't muzzle the dog. We would all say, muzzle that thing. Muzzle that evil beast. Gag him. Silence him. That's what this Greek word is used. It's the word for gag put a gag in somebody's mouth or, or a bridle for a horse. Bridle them. Put them under submission. This is, this is intense kind of language. And this is the kind of intensity that I think we have to have. We see false teaching coming up in the church and around us in our life. We've got to silence that. The people that we're responsible for, our kids, our spouses, we've got to say, hey, this is why I protect your ears from these things. That, that we've got to be intense about that. But even in that as well, we also have to know I need to have that kind of intensity in my own life when it comes to the false voices that I'm allowing myself to hear and chew on. See, in our current world, in our current context, there, are, there is a gathering place for false teachers. In the, in the Greco-Roman world, world, that may have been a marketplace or, or a specific place that they might have gone to debate philosophy and those kind of things. In the Jewish Christian world, it may have been a synagogue where they came together and they, and they debated and they talked through the scriptures and they talked to those things. We don't really have that today. Not a whole lot of people come to church to have debates these days. There's not really uh, the farmer's market. That's not really happening. There's not a lot of debating going on. But there's a place. We're all gathering where people are coming together and they're debating these different ideologies of the world. It's Facebook. It's YouTube. It's Twitter. It's Reddit. The internet is filled with places where we're gathering together, even if it's virtually, and and debating these different ideologies and these different things that are going on. And what I would suggest is the Christians in particular, we need to silence some of those voices. We need to take very good care and start thinking about the diet that we're having when it comes to the intake of information in our lives. There is a a pastor, or he's the senior editor for the Gospel Coalition. His name is Brett McCracken. And he came up with this thing called the Wisdom Pyramid. It should be behind me if the technology works. We were having some trouble this morning. But the Wisdom Pyramid, and you kind of think, if you think back to the, day, the old days, maybe in elementary school, and you talked about the food pyramid and the kinds of things that they look like. And so he's kind of stealing from that on purpose, and he, and he lays out this Wisdom Pyramid. And at the bottom, the thing that we should be intaking the most Christians shouldn't be surprised, is the Bible, right? We should be bringing in our wisdom pyramid. How we take about wisdom should be the Bible, and that's like the, the grains of our, our life. And the next thing you see is like the local church, which might be like fruits and vegetables. The really sad thing that Christian pastors learned over the last year, you know, it was really hard as somebody who shepherded people, is we learned a really hard truth. The internet has more sway over the hearts of our people than we do. 
Local church pastors learned an incredibly hard and disheartening lesson in the last year and a half. Celebrity pastors, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, hold more sway and opinion in the lives of our people than we do. That is not God's design. God has given you local shepherds who know you personally, local teachers, local small group leaders, local community group leaders who need to hold more sway in your life than Reddit. They've got to do more to shape your opinions and and, and ideology, and not just those leaders, but even the people in your church. There's too many people reading what some other guy in some other place had to write about a particular issue than just going to somebody else in their church and saying, hey, can we have lunch and talk about this thing? It was, it was super disheartening, if I could just be really blunt and honest. It was one of the hardest things as a pastor to watch, to say, like, man, we've preached this and preached this and preached this, and now to get somebody's opinion on something, and you went to the internet before you went to your brother in Christ. Like, that is nuts. That's crazy, but it's what we did for the last 18 months. Nature and beauty, God's created order and the way that it works. Books, believe it or not, books have to go through publishing processes. You can't just like hit enter and now you're published on the internet. It actually has to get checked and fact-checked. If you go to a book that's recent, a book that's written, typically you're going to get a lot better information than just random Google article or Wikipedia that anybody can change. Then we can look at the internet. The internet's a useful tool. I, I don't want to make the internet out to be evil. You know, b- blaming the, the internet for your uh, bad information and for your sin is like me blaming my screwdriver for the pictures being crooked in my house. Like, the screwdriver worked fine. I'm the one who's off, right? It's the same thing. The internet, it's a tool, and it's a good and it's a helpful tool, The problem is we're not trained in how to use it very well. That's what 2020 and 2020 taught us. And finally, the fats and oils, the candy of our diet is social media. It's YouTube, it's Facebook, it's Twitter. And the reality is if we put up a wisdom pyramid that actually showed the intake of our church, we would probably see that somehow social media has made it way far down on the pyramid. We're intellectually puffy. We're intellectually unhealthy. We're spiritually fat because we're gorging ourselves on fats and oils, on the candy. We're cavity-riven in our minds because we're just intaking this stuff that isn't helpful. It hasn't been checked or fact-checked. It isn't. We just consume and consume and consume because after all, all I have to do is this and I can just eat it up. And you have a guide on that journey. I don't know if you know that or not. It's a piece of machinery. It's an algorithm, but it is guiding you all the way. And it is really, really good at finding out the things that you really, really like. It doesn't mean that it's really good at showing you what's true. It doesn't mean that it's good at showing you what you like. As people who know that the heart is deceitfully wicked, that should terrify us. When all I have is this thing that just shows me the things that I like. Because if that's all it shows you is what you like and what gets clicks, over time you're going to start to see that it starts taking you down some dangerous, dangerous places. It doesn't care what's true. It cares what you click on. Because that's what drives the money and the advertisements. We need to be careful. We need to silence these voices in our lives. 
I want to encourage you to be really practical. You may need to consider taking the app off of your phone. It's just too accessible. It's too easy. Yeah, that means you're going to post less stuff. That might be a really good thing. Sometimes some of the problem is we go head to world without any filter. Maybe if you can't just immediately post something, it'll slow you down just enough to keep you from saying things that you shouldn't be saying, joining in with false voices. And yet that's not all we're called to do. We're not just called to silence the false voices in our lives, but we also have to rebuke the false teachers as well. As we look at point number two, we need to rebuke false teachers in verses 12 through 14. It says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. What's really interesting here is he's kind of using this, this term prophet ironically on purpose. I think that's so funny because you can't be a prophet if you say stuff that's untrue. You can't be a good prophet. And he's calling them people who are always liars. And, and it's a weird statement. It's, it's kind of actually something that happens a lot in Greek where it, it can't be true. It's a statement that can't be true. Like either that statement is true, in which case that false prophet who's always a liar didn't lie in that particular scenario because he told the truth, or it's a false statement, in which case he told the truth, but now it's a lie, right? Like, it's, it, he's doing that on purpose. It's, it's, it's irony. It's supposed to kind of make Greek readers giggle that they're, they're looking at that. It, it's kind of just a way that you, you bring out some irony and make things interesting as he says that. But look what he calls them. He calls them people who, who always lie. And in that, he is contrasting them with the Christian pastor, right? Where the, the, the Christian false teacher is, is a liar, the Christian pastor has to hold fast to the trustworthy word that's taught. The Christian teacher is an evil beast, but the Christian pastor has to be self-controlled and disciplined. The, the Christian false teacher is a lazy glutton, but again, the Christian pastor has to be disciplined. He's doing that on purpose, and he's contrasting these two things. He's saying, this is what these false teachers look like. This is what men of God who lead the church have to look like. This is what they have to be, because those men of God, these, these people who are leading the church, they have to be willing to rebuke them. As, as we continue on in, in the text, that this testimony is true, so therefore rebuke them sharply. That word rebuke, it, it means to, it, sometimes it gets translated as convince them convict them. It means to bring something to light. So it's not just like, stop doing that. It's also stop doing that and start doing what's right. It's saying to do that in a winsome way. And then he says, and do that sharply. That Greek word, it it literally means to cut, cut them with the truth. Sometimes the, the truth does in fact hurt we can't have these, these kind of silk mittens when we're dealing with these false teachers. We have to be willing to say what is true and stand for it. But we cut the heel. We have to see that as we do that, why do they need to rebuke them sharply? They rebuke them sharply so they might not devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Right? They don't want them to devote themselves to things that are untrue. They want them to, to, to change, to come around. What's so interesting about that is he's not just saying, hey, these false teachers come, kick them out and boot them out. He's telling them, rebuke them sharply so they will stop doing what's untrue and start doing what is right. Win them to the faith. Bring them into the family. They have to, again, cut to heel like a surgeon's knife. 
They have to bring in and precisely cut out the false teaching in these people's lives so that it might be, be better and walk in healing. I think there are two extremes that we can run to when we talk about rebuking sharply. One, which is probably most prevalent in our culture, and I'm guilty of both of them, unfortunately, is we never pick up the scalpel. We know that there is something in there that needs to be removed. We know we need to deal with that, but we're too afraid to make the cut. And we never pick up the scalpel and we just let the wound fester and become infected and grow and grow and grow until it's too late and we lose that brother or sister. We don't want to pick up the scalpel. The other is we drop the scalpel and we pick up a chainsaw and we just start hacking away, right? That's the other extreme. I want to say that we want to rebuke sharply. We can't be afraid to cut, but this isn't a license to be a jerk. This isn't licensed to just be mean and rude and nasty to people. I've often heard people who are good at picking up the chainsaw, those kind of folks, that's maybe where you lean. They like, there's this kind of saying that's really dominated a lot of social media lately that I've seen. They say things like this, the truth doesn't care about your feelings. That's a really dangerous thing to say. I understand what they're trying to get to. They're trying to push back in the reality of our culture that a lot of times people decide to believe what's true based on what makes them feel good because they're looking more internally than externally to what is truth like and I get that but then they use that as a license to just ram somebody the truth doesn't care about your feelings and so then they just go down the throat right for the jugular the truth if we personify it is Jesus and Jesus cares about the whole person Jesus cares about the emotions and the feelings of others. We cannot argue in such a way with people that we stomp on them as people, that we forget that they're image bearers of God, that we drop the scalpel and just start hacking away limbs. We're to cut to heal. When we look at the example of Jesus and how he did this, Jesus never backed down. Jesus was never afraid to say what was true. Jesus said what was true even when it got him killed, even when it got him persecuted, even when people came after him for it. But when Jesus said what was true, he told stories. He asked questions. He provided for the physical needs of other people. He shared meals with them. He laid his hands on them for healing. He touched them and entered into the world when no one else would. If we are also doing those things in our rebuking, if we're not willing to walk with people in their difficulty, then we're just mad scientists wielding scalpels, cutting off anything. That's not what we want to be. We want to be healers, knowing that we've got to cause pain to sometimes bring about that healing, but we want to be precise in it. We want to make the cuts that matter. We want to be like Jesus So as we look at that application point, it's rebuke sharply, but cut to heal. Tell stories, ask questions. Think about it before you get there. Think about what you're going to say to people, how you might be more winsome. Don't get loud in the middle of the conversation just to have your way, just to win the argument. And as we cut to heal, we need to take seriously the command to rebuke people in order to help them grow. We want to see them grow in sound faith. That's that, that word there. Or another way to say that, that word, translate that word sound is healthy. 
We want to see them be healthy in their faith. And as we want to see people be healthy, we want to bring healing into their lives, even if we have to do a hard thing, we need to do that remembering that a defiled mind brings forth defiled works. We need to understand that that's what the, the rest of this text is teaching us as we look to verse 15. It says, To the pure, all things are pure, but the, to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. We jump to verse 15 back there. He says, to the pure, all things are pure, but the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. This is probably referring to, again, those Jewish traditions that they're bringing in. They're adding to it. And, and we know from Mark 7, what we read, that Jesus pronounced that all things were clean. That it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but it's what comes out of us and our hearts. And what Paul is saying is, listen, to the pure, those who have a right understanding of the gospel, all things, all foods, uh, whether you're circumcised or not circumcised, whether you celebrate the Sabbath like we do on Sunday or whether you do it maybe like a, a Jewish person might on a Saturday, like that's not the main point. To the pure, all things are pure because he's, he's saying like they understand rightly, therefore they're understanding that, that these things are okay, that they're pure. But to the impure, those who are defiled in their mind and in the conscience, nothing is pure. Nothing's good enough. Nothing measures up. You've got to add and add and add and add to the gospel. And once you get caught in the adding to the gospel game, it never stops. Legalism just keeps going and going and going. It's Jesus plus this. Well, now it's Jesus plus this. Now it's Jesus plus this. It's Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus something equals nothing. We cannot add to the gospel. That's, that's not what that can be. And so what he's saying is, is that to the, the, to the ones who have a pure understanding of the gospel, that they're not adding to the gospel. But to those who don't have a right understanding of the gospel, both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Their minds, their intellect, the things that they believe have been off. They're wrong. And it's a top-button issue. This is an illustration I heard from a pastor lately. When you put on a dress shirt, if you mess up your top button, you mess up all the other buttons. Our mind, what we believe, if we don't get that right, if we don't get what we believe about who God is, who we are, we will mess up all the other buttons. We'll mess up everything else. And that's what happens to the conscience. The conscience is God's gift given to every person, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. Now, when you become a Christian, your conscience kind of gets a steroid shot and you start to be convicted of what's right and wrong because the top button has now been buttoned right. But even the non-believer has a conscience. Even non-Christians know, the Bible tells us that, that God in the new covenant has written his law on our hearts. Romans 1 tells us that we've, but the non-believer has suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, meaning the truth is there. They know what's right and wrong. Their own conscience testifies against them. What Paul is saying is that conscience has gotten defiled. It's gotten out of whack because what they believe about God and the world has gotten out of whack. And now it's off. And because their mind is defiled and the conscience then follows the mind, that now they're at a place where they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works, right? So they say with their mouth, we, we know who God is, but their actions say something differently. The top button is off, and so now they're all off. 
When I was growing up, I grew up in a coal mining community. And in, in our town, if in uh, high school, you went to Gillespie High School. But if you lived in Gillespie in elementary school, you went to Beneld Elementary School. Beneld was this really small town built on a coal mine. And at Beneld Elementary School, when I was in high school, they built this brand new and beautiful facility. And something terrible happened over the weekend. The mine underneath the school shifted and broke. And when that happened, it caused the foundation in the school itself to immediately shift. And what happened is the floor had immediate cracks in it. You had cracks running up the walls, all these things. If you can see on the screen behind us. And overnight, over the course of a weekend, a brand new million dollars, millions of dollars of facility was condemned. My coal mining poor community immediately could not send their children to school because their building was condemned. We had to bust out pods. I mean, it it wrecked everything. My senior year was totally flipped upside down because it just messed up the whole school system. All because their foundation wasn't built on a good foundation. It was built on a mine shaft and the mine shifted and it broke. What I want to suggest is that our minds, our worldview, the way that we see the world, the way that we interpret information is kind of like a house. And the part that we see are the walls and the roof of the house, and that's like our actions and our words and the things that we do. But the part that we don't see, it's that foundation. And if your foundation is cracked, if there's problems in the foundation, there will inevitably be shifts in the house. And the cracks in the walls and cracks in the roof. And the the problem is, is the house will come tumbling down. When we see a crack in the wall, the thoughts and the actions, the words, we need to know it's there because there's a crack in the foundation, because something has shifted and changed. See, our worldview is is, is built in such a way that if, if we don't build upon what is good and a sure foundation, the G, what Jesus calls the rock, the house will come tumbling down. Now here's what's really ch- tricky. So I'm going to dive into something deep for a second. I want you to follow me. This is a little hard. It's hard for me to even explain. I hope that I don't get what's called fuzzy preaching or fuzzy, fuzzy thoughts in, in preaching as I try to articulate this well. Every human being Christian, non-Christian, no matter your worldview, has what are called presuppositions. Presuppositions are simply this. They are things you pre, beforehand, suppose are true. Everybody builds their philosophy, their ideology, what they think about off of some presuppositional truth. That's That's just the way it is. No matter who you are, That's true. Another way to say that is we all, whether Christian or non-Christian, have faith commitments. They're just things that you say are inherently self-evident and true, and that's what I build the rest of my worldview off of. That's your foundation. Those presuppositions, those underlying presupposed faith commitments that you make are your foundation. Now, as the Christian, that's the bottom layer of the wisdom pyramid. We want that to be the Bible. We want that to be God himself. And, and, and I want to even suggest even deeper than that, while my foundation is built upon 
what I believe to be true, what's really awesome as a Christian, is the ground, the reality that I build that on is actually true. Right? Meaning this, there is a truth out there. There is ground to be built on. And even if you think your foundation is really, really good, if you build it on a coal mine, it's going to shift underneath you. Right? It's going to break. And what we want to do when we engage with whether it's a non-believer or even a Christian who's maybe fallen for some false teaching or whatever, is we need to get better as a culture, as an American church, at aiming at those foundational truths, at aiming at the things that they presuppose to be true. Too often, we walk into conversations and we want to argue with the wall. We want to argue with the crack in the wall and we just want to intellectually speaking, grab some spackle, throw it on there, and just paint over it and say, see, now you're behaving right. Got it. But we're not asking the hard questions of where's the crack in the foundation. We have Christians who are like more, just to use an issue, somebody with two adopted kids, don't freak out. I'm very pro-life. We have Christians who are more passionate about whether or not people are pro-life or poor choice, whether than they are whether or not they believe in Jesus. Like, if you can convince your pro-choice friends to be pro-life, they're still going to hell. Like, the problem is, is we just, like, make that the issue that we want to yell and argue and try to get. Like, that's this an example, right? We get stuck in that conversation. And instead of taking this awesome opportunity to question people's presuppositions, to question why they believe those things to be true, we just whiff, and we make it all about winning the argument, convincing them to take our side on something. I'm not saying those things aren't important, but man, it matters way, way more in the scope of eternity if we get to the root of those kinds of questions. That's what we're constantly trying, or, or it's just behavior modification. You have a friend, and their behavior has made your life really, really inconvenient, So you just want them to change so that your life is more convenient rather than digging in deep and trying to figure out where are the cracks in their foundation? What's going on? That's where stories, where questions are so helpful for us as we we look at these things. We have to see that the foundation matters. The foundation is really what it's all about because in the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, he says this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. If all you do is prepare, repair walls and, 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 and roofs built on sand, you're still not preparing them for the flood that's suppo- that will come at the end you're still not giving them what they need for when that day when they will stand before a holy and righteous judge in Jesus. So our application point today is this, is focus on the foundation and not the walls. We've got to ask those hard questions. It's so easy to try to just 
cover up the cracks rather than try to get to the root and the point of that. Guys, dealing with false teaching is hard. It is really, really hard. I wish I could say I've done this better in my life. I run to the two extremes. If I just don't want to pick up the scalpel or I've gotten in arguments where I just look like a fool. It requires courage and wisdom and gentleness. If we're going to silence false voices, if we're going to rebuke people in order to win them over, if we're going to cut for the sake of healing, we have to remember that we must go for the foundation. You have to aim for the heart of a person. What do they believe? What do they want? What do they desire? Because they will give you smoke screen after smoke screen after smoke screen, and they are happy to argue with you about the walls. But everyone wants to protect the foundation because that's where the idols are at. And we, we've got to get better as the American church of, of, stop, of, of trying to win arguments and instead trying to get to the heart of the matter. We have to remember that wrong beliefs lead to wrong action. And if that's true, then we as Christians have got to take this very seriously because we're the only ones with the right belief. Only the gospel has all of the answers. Nothing else will do. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for all the good gifts that you give us. Jesus, help us. Help me. Help us be people who aren't afraid to engage with false teaching, whatever that might be. There is a lot of it around us. That we don't just ignore people who have been caught up maybe in in a cultic kind of thing or or people who just want to just argue for the sake of argument. Lord, I don't don't want us to cast our pearls before swine, but Lord, I also don't want to stand before you and say I didn't try. I didn't try to remove the cancer in that person's life and their thought life that led them to disbelief. Give us courage and give us gentleness. Help us be wise. Help us take in good information so that we are ready in the spur of the moment to do what we need to do. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.